Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Builders Bell podcast. I'm your host, George Poo. Today, I'm inviting a very awesome guest to join us, who is currently the CEO of Asset Management Hedge Fund, QTS Asset Management. So his name is Nahid Jetta. So Nahid, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's super excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, George. It's great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I know, Nahid, you're currently running QTS Asset Management. From what I know, it's a hedge fund. He tells more about what is a hedge fund and what do you guys do on a daily basis? A hedge fund is essentially just a pool of funds that are essentially managed by a manager using kind of alternative strategies. So there's a whole variety of types of hedge funds that are, are strategies that can be employed. You've got these kind of discretionary strategies, buy and hold type stuff, looking for dips in the market and then moving in. You've got quant strategies, which is the kind of strategies that we typically employ and what those are. are automated, systematic trading strategies that are looking for patterns in, in market data to indicate profit, potentially profitable trading opportunities. So it's a pool of funds being managed by a variety of different types of strategies. Okay. I would love to get into that in a bit, but before that, Nahi, let's talk more about your background. What was your background leading up to being the CEO of QTS? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I had a, I guess, unconventional background moving into this position. Did my PhD in physics at the University of British Columbia. And, you know, I was focused on biological physics. So we were probing individual molecules of DNA and protein at the single molecule level. It's a lot of fun. I was fortunate enough to get a professorship at the university after finishing up my PhD. But it was around similar times, closer to the end of my PhD, where I started really getting into financial markets reading a lot about the chaotic environment that a financial market kind of exhibits. So reading Benoit Mandelbrot was kind of my first book, Misbehavior of Markets. And then I tried to actually build a stochastic volatility model based on some of his papers and his collaborators' papers. This was closer to my end of my PhD and I'm just pursuing this stuff out of fun. And so when I moved into my professorship, one of the research programs that I started developing at that time was a quant algorithmic trading kind of research program in line with some of my more recent interests. I was kind of exploring, dabbling in the HFT domain. I actually read a lot of Ernie Chan's books. I've read all his books and got interested in the HFT space. And then after that, some of my strategies, algorithms were working kind of nicely. I ended up going independent and started working with a HFT firm in New York, building high-frequency trading strategies. Brought a lot of the stuff that I was, that I already built and then just engaging in a lot of that research. So I kind of moved into the space that way. And then from there, I had these HFT strategies. I started developing other strategies, not necessarily HFT, partnered up with QTS in 2019. So I was building up my clientele with other groups and it just kind of grew from there. I had partnered up with some groups in Canada doing some font research, same with in Europe, in London. So the clientele kind of, kind of grew, unfortunately. And then the opportunity to solidify things with QTS came about in 2021. Here, and you kind of approached me with this potential opportunity to work more closely with QTS and take more and more responsibility of managing. And so that's how it all started, I guess. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think that here we touched on a few like words, a few terms such as quant HFT. So let's go through each one of those slowly. Tell us more about what does quant mean in the hedge fund world? Like what is quant and why is QTS employing quant? So quant strategies are typically, you know, systematic, they're systematic strategies. There's some quantitative, quant is short for quantitative. So there's some quantitative approach or basis to the strategy. So 
A simple example is the pairs trading with the ETFs. There's the S&P 500 ETFs and there's the leverage ETFs and you can create pairs with those ETFs. What you do is you typically attach some sort of quantitative or mathematical model that describes the relationship between those, in this example, and between those ETFs. So the idea here is you're applying some sort of quantitative or math to characterize the relationship between those ETFs. If your model does a good job, and in this case, when they're like highly correlated ETFs, uh, typically a linear regression model works well. But if your model works well, you can use that to potentially signal trading opportunities. So in this case, with pairs trading, if they're highly correlated ETFs, when that relationship has diverged a bit, one of the, one of the ETFs is expensive relative to the other one, you can short the expensive ETF and buy the, buy the cheaper ETF and then close out when that relationship merges. And all of this ends up being dictated by your model, your math model. So expensive versus cheap, that's all kind of determined by the model and the signals that are generated by this mathematical model. Let's talk more about like the models themselves. I know those are probably like mathematical models. Those are probably like statistical models. That, that sounds a little bit more complex. So how are the models formed initially? Is this an idea in your head that you think, okay, there might be something there and then start to becoming more mature model? Walk us through a little bit more about those steps. That's an excellent question. There is definitely a process to identifying things that are working. I mean, it fundamentally does start off with some sort of idea. If you're thinking, you know, a stock is exhibiting time series momentum, meaning past returns are indicative of future returns in this particular regime. In the quant space or the algorithmic trading space, what you'll typically do is code up this strategy. So it might have some particular math model associated with it or a set of rules, say the returns are for Amazon stock are above 1%. Well, if, if that happens, then jump into a position. You'll define the model. You'll define the rules that determine the strategy. At this point, it's really just a hypothesis. So this is your idea. This is your hypothesis. And what you'll do is you'll actually, with the data, carve out some amount, one or two years of what's called in-sample data to fit your strategy to the data in a sense. So. It, your strategy is going to have a handful of parameters, the entry threshold, the stop loss thresholds, whatever. And you're kind of tweaking these parameters and exploring what looks good in sample. If you've got one or two years of in sample data on my end, I typically like to have on the order of 10-ish years of out of sample data. So the in sample data is where you're fitting your model and the out of sample data is where you're actually testing if this model actually works, if it actually works on unseen data, on unseen market data. There's quite a process involved in developing these strategies. And the reality is the markets are quite efficient. You'll send in a little bit of out of sample data into your model. And a lot of the times these models will just fail. These strategies will fail. And that could be fundamentally the strategy is just not a good strategy, or it maybe needs some tweaks to actually make itself a, a good strategy. That's where kind of the, where the process lies is developing the model and determining, essentially determining when you should cut your losses and move on to the next strategy. And the out of sample data is key for that. And I find, you know, it, it happens frequently, right? You, you cut your losses, you, yes, strategy is not worth pursuing any further. You move on to the next strategy because you, you push out a sample to some out of sample data through and it fails. You're like, okay, well, the hypothesis is false. Or you conclude, you do some analysis, conclude that it's not a good hypothesis and move on to the next strategy. So there's a process involved and it's, it's, it's very research intensive.
I think that he like the process he just mentioned, I think is super interesting because it, it's so different from the traditional hedge fund way of doing things. I guess the traditional hedge fund way of doing things, there are many ways they can do things, but the primary way I think is to do some fundamental analysis about a certain stock or many stocks and then pick a few stocks that might go up or down. So that has been traditionally the way those kind of firms do it. So can you talk more about how Quan is fundamentally different from the traditional hedge funds? I think uh, what you're talking about is discretionary approaches versus I guess these like quant approaches is what you're narrowing in at. And I think the biggest difference between quant and discretionary is with quant, you could actually backtest your strategy. You can see how your strategy would have done in the past with all of this data that's readily available. So you could code up this strategy. It's perfectly defined. And then you can see how it would have done in the past. With a purely discretionary strategy, you, you can't really do that. With the, even with hybrid quant discretionary strategies and hybrid strategies are like that I described are there's some sort of quant model that guides decision-making, but ultimately the final decision is a discretionary decision. Even in those cases, it's pretty difficult. You, you essentially can't get a backtest for those kinds of strategies. And I think that's the biggest difference here is being able to actually test how a strategy would have done. So there is much more of a, you're able to actually do science in a way. You can develop hypotheses and test hypotheses and with the data and kind of zero in on something that could actually work. Yeah. To your point with fundamental analysis, there's quant strategies can make use of all that fundamental data as well. And certainly some strategies do. So there's a lot of kind of space to play in the, in the quant space. So as long as the data is available, you can build something. I think that he also mentioned something about like backtesting and all the whole process, which brings me to my next question is like, I think a lot of retail traders or people who don't really understand quant, their notion or their understanding of quant is, is imagining a few PhDs or, or tens of 10, 50 PhDs sitting in a room trying to crack the code for how the stock market operates. And some people say Renaissance might be doing that and there's just a lot of hype about it. So in your opinion, what is the actual quant, QTS is a quant firm. And you deal with conference every day. Is that myth true or, or is, is it actually quite different? Oh, trying to like crack the market or, or break the market or find some like secret sauce that wins all the time. Is that the question? Yeah, exactly. I don't know if there's necessarily a, well, yeah, you brought up Rentec, which they've got a incredibly impressive, I mean, it's a pretty secretive fund, but from what has been talked about with respect to that fund, particularly the book, The Man Who Sold the Market, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the track record and they certainly have a very impressive track, but it's unclear with the details of their strategies. But in general, I don't know if there's any strategy that is going to just work all the time. There's something called alpha decay in the space. One simple example of how alpha decay takes place is, you know, one quant firm independently discovers some sort of pattern in the market data and they exploit it with some sort of uh, trading strategy, maybe an algorithmic trading strategy. And it's working out and they're making profits, but there are a lot of smart groups that are also doing similar things, looking for various patterns, looking for strategies and lots of other smart groups are going to find, eventually find what you found. And the idea is as more people jump on a strategy, the profit opportunities start to dwindle. And then eventually as enough people kind of employ the same strategy, the strategy, the profitability of the strategy goes essentially to zero. And then you got to kind of move on to the next thing. So think of the space as a process of constant innovation. They're constantly looking, developing strategies looking for profit opportunities in the market. 
but you can never really stop there once you've identified a strategy that, that, that might be profitable, that looks good because you never know when that strategy is going to essentially the profitability is going to decay. So you're constantly developing new strategies and then fundamentally you have some kind of portfolio of, of strategies and there's births into the portfolio as in new strategies are coming in and depths as in like strategies that were once profitable are no longer profitable and they're exiting. So you've got this portfolio that has this influx and outflux as it relates to strategies. And it's this constant process of innovation. That, that's a very, the very unique point. And I think that he, like you mentioned about strategies in quant, but like, do you say like for non-quant, this also happens? So people develop like those strategies that they might trade manually, might eventually when too many people pile onto the same strategy, it stop working. I think in day trading, they might have something similar to that. Do you think it also applies to a non-quant side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say the one advantage that discretionary strategy I don't know if it's an advantage, but well, if you're a good discretionary trader, absolutely, this could be an advantage. There's one advantage is you can be very dynamic with your strategy. If you're a successful discretionary trader that has some sort of intuition of the market, well, whatever strategy you're employing, you can dynamically adjust it. All of a sudden, the market regime has switched on its head. And as a discretionary trader, you've identified that you were in a totally different market regime and you can change your strategy. Essentially, the strategy is dynamic and it's changing. And so it's less susceptible to, I guess, this alpha decay. Whereas in a quant strategy, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of change things on the fly. When it's built, it's very systematically built. There's a scientific process involved in building that strategy. But once you deploy it, you want to be very cautious about making a change to that strategy. Because if in, in the case of a quant strategy, if you start making changes to it on the fly, now you're actually trading a totally different strategy. You're trading your quant strategy plus all of these changes. And because you're not a discretionary trader, you don't have some, or you may not be, I mean, maybe, maybe you are, but if you're in the case that you're not a discretionary trader with some super great intuition of the market, the changes that you're making aren't going to be, our chances aren't going to be as successful as your counterpart, who's a discretionary trader by profession and has been successful in this space. So, so to answer your question, the discretionary side, some of them are a bit, a bit less susceptible because they can dynamically adjust their strategy. Those strategies that are much more systematic are a bit more susceptible to them, but individuals that can kind of, you know, market regime changes, they're going to change their strategy, but it's a little bit less susceptible to, to, to that process. Some of our listeners might also be asking, like, is quant like accessible on an individual level? Past there has been products like Quantopian, QuantConnect that makes it a lot easier for people to jump into quant. But there's still, I think personally, there's still a lot of like code restrictions that you have to be, you have to know how to code. You have to be an engineer. You have to be a data scientist. Some of those myths perhaps are myths are how you can, one can get into quant. So like, Nahid, do you think retail investors, retail traders, like those people generally just like in the market folks. Do you think they might have a way to get into quant and building their own quant algorithms? Or is that still down the line? Well, I think it's certainly becoming more accessible. Certainly with these third-party platforms, like you mentioned Quant Connect, previously, kind of the way to get into it would be have to be quite the coder, at least know a specific scripting language and then a compiled language at least to kind of dabble in the field and need, would need access to data. And data at, back in the day was pretty expensive. These days with these third-party platforms that make the coding much easier, the coding languages are much easier 
they give you access to, to minute resolution or even tick data for quite cheap. The barrier to entry to at least explore quant strategies has dropped significantly. I think a lot of retail traders are kind of able to, yeah, more easily enter into the space. I mean, there's pros and cons with the third-party platforms relative to just coding the system up in MATLAB or some compiled language. When you do things in MATLAB or Python and then move to a compiled language, you have ultimate flexibility of what you want to build with some of these third-party platforms, maybe less flexibility, but on the upside with these third-party platforms is it's very easy to go from backtest to, to execution. So advantages and disadvantages on, on, on kind of both sides, but to answer your question, yeah, it's a lot easier now for people to kind of explore the space at least. And I think I, I really want to ask Nahi, like, is your like a typical day, how much time do you spend on different things? So I know you, like, you joined QTS as CEO, I think since this year or last year. So how has that been? And where do you spend majority of your time on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, you're kind of wearing multiple hats in, in this position. There's the, the operation side, just dealing with your third-party fund administrator, tax-related matters, the regulatory bodies, there's that side. There's the client relations, working with the existing clients, prospective clients. Um, and then there's kind of the research side of things where you're actually building new strategies and working with the research team to, to act test and develop new ideas, new strategies. And I'd say all kind of all three aspects have there, obviously all of it is very important and it actually ends up roughly evening out in terms of time operations, working with the clients and the research to kind of improve the fund, improve the strategies and improve our tracks. Previously, you were a physics professor. Now you're becoming a hedge fund manager and dealing with client, dealing with operations. So is that a very different transition for you? How has that transition been like for you to be? now doing some research or mostly operations and investor relations, for example. So y yes and no, the transition is different. I mean, I'd say on the de the details are quite different, you know, working with clients or dealing with the third party administrators or the regulatory bodies, so those details are quite different. But when you're kind of a professor, you have multiple responsibilities as well. You're, you've got teaching, you've got research, and then you've got service with the university. And so in the same way, you've got to balance your time between all these different tasks. And then as a professor, you're trying to grow your research lab, grow your, I guess, your academic track record. But at the same time, the teaching is key. You know, you want to deliver quality education to your students. And then again, with service, you just kind of want to make sure that you're uh, contributing to the university. So all these things are, again, very important priorities. Not necessarily equal, but, but important priorities that you kind of got to budget your time with. And so I'd say at the macro level, the, the hundred foot view, it's kind of the same, same themes, uh, lots of competing priorities and being able to manage your time between the different things, but the details are different. Yeah. The details are different for sure. I mean, yeah, working with fund administrators is, or the regulatory bodies is a very different thing than building FIS 200 quantum mechanics course or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely see the differences there. Yeah. And I think that he like in a hedge fund space, I think in the past couple of years, like there has been a lot of changes, not like in the fundamentals of hedge funds, but in terms of how the new generation of investors and traders are using apps such as Robinhood, such as Simple, they are becoming more and more powerful. For example, like I think the GameStop, the GameStop, I think fiasco, some might say, has really proven that like hedge funds are now becoming less and less powerful. And there's always this like, hypothesis that about retail investors that hedge funds are just those powerful companies that have hundreds of billions of dollars just throw at problems. So how are you feeling those dynamics? And do you think hedge funds are now less profitable because of retail investors? Just in general, I just want to get your thoughts. 
I'd say the biggest thing, it's an interesting shift in the market environment. So what I'd say is markets are dynamic. They're always changing, kind of enter into new environments that are unseen. And this is a very interesting regime shift or behavior of the market that we kind of haven't seen. That's the massive influence on the market of the retail investor. And like to your point, very much kind of enhanced by these kind of apps like Robinhood and then these social media platforms, right? Where retail traders can actually, actually more easily communicate and align their trading activities. It's a very, it's a very interesting regime that we're in. And we've certainly seen the effects of it with some of our trading strategies. For example, in 2021, we were seeing a lot of, a lot of uh, end of day reversals when it comes to the market. So the market might be tanking and as opposed to what you might expect for a variety of reasons, continued momentum in the direction of, in the downward direction in this example, we were seeing a lot of end of day reversals, a lot of buying activity, buying, buying the dips so much so that the market would kind of spike upwards. And this has been kind of attributed to a lot of that retail money moving into the space. So something that we weren't really seeing before became a much more, a much more important effect post, essentially, I, not say post COVID, but I'd say from June or maybe July or August, 2020 to, to, to where we are today. So yeah, it's an interesting market environment that the retail influences put us in. The thing that he, like I have personally witnessed is that there are like hedge funds are much harder to survive or like hedge fund performances are, have been decreasing over the past few decades. And I was doing some initial research myself. And I think maybe part of the reason is that information has become more accessible to, for example, uh, retail investors or other investors. So that there, there used to be like the, there used to be information advantages, like hedge funds will have much faster access to stock data, for example, to the price data. And now they don't, it used to be like, like the, the hedge funds have access to satellite data and some proprietary data, second level two data, and now they don't. Right. So I think even news data as well. So like, uh, do you think that might be the reason why hedge funds are performing like less just in general? I would actually say that hedge fund from the stuff that I've seen pretty large inflows I into hedge funds. More recently, some hedge funds go under because for whatever reasons, for example, strategies are not workable in, in the existing market environment. So, and that might be, but what you're kind of hinting at is kind of death of certain, of certain hedge funds. And that's kind of part of the, kind of part of the process. But from what I've seen, inflows are, are actually increasing to the hedge fund space globally. Now, when you go into the details of where that money is potentially going, like what kind of strategies people are investing in. That may be a trickier thing to kind of pinpoint, but I'd say particularly in the market environment that we're in right now, the market is down quite a bit year to date. This is kind of where hedge funds really should be kind of showing their worth in a sense. It's like if they're market neutral, for example, they're uncorrelated with the markets and like a good opportunity for said market neutral strat strategies, assuming they're up for the year to kind of, in a sense, market themselves as a, as another point of diversification for your overall portfolio. It's like, look, this is kind of the point of these, these funds is when the market is these kind of chaotic market environments is another place to potentially diversify your entire portfolio. Well, and that's just an example, you know, specific to kind of market new, neutral funds. Some arguments I think that are in the hedge fund space is like some people are saying like nowadays newer hedge funds are just getting scrutinized more by their clients and their investors about the day-to-day -day performances. And it's actually much stressful than running, let's say a private equity firm or a venture capital firm. Those are just one of the debates I think people have brought up. So now here, like you've seen so many hedge fund managers, you've seen so many hedge funds. 
what are the things you wish the hedge fund space can change in general for the better? I think about it as transparency, but hedge funds are, with the environment that they operate in, they're, they're quite actually quite, quite transparent. So that's kind of the, my first thought is like, can you increase transparency with these funds? But there's quite a lot of transparency when it comes comes to funds, which, which to your point, which allows individual investors to kind of scrutinize the fund itself and their performance much better. What do you think like the, the clients, investors can do better? I think that can also serve as like a, that, that can also be part of it as well. Because personally, I've heard a lot of things about like, just like what I said, like the daily performances, monthly performances has been scrutinized. And if you're not performing well on the months is what I heard, like investors will be happily pulling their capital and put it somewhere else. So is that a challenge like, that you've seen in the hedge fund world? And is that something you wish could be a little bit different? Or maybe that's just for the early stage hedge funds. It's important that it depends on the strategy. If the strategy is a high volatility strategy, so it, it delivers high returns, but also has some tough months as well. It's not going to be every month is going to be a winning month or every day is going to be a winning day. Um, because this is the, the strategy that we're employing. And, and I think it's important that the investors are very much aware of that and comfortable uh, with that so that when, if, and when they do decide, okay, we're going to push capital through what those down months, uh, take place. So it falls within their expectations. It's not a surprise. Now that's with a high vol strategy, but it, you can absolutely have these low volatility strategies that are positive every month and maybe deliver like kind of low returns and are positive every month, low returns, but are yeah, positive every month. A strategy like that, if you start seeing big down months that are not in not in line with what the expectations of strategy are, that's when it's kind of, I guess, it makes sense for a client or an investor to, to start asking questions and potentially, and potentially start doing redemptions. And fundamentally it's because a strategy is, is not performing the way it's expected to perform and the way it's performed necessarily, yeah, the way it's expected to perform based on what the strategy is doing and maybe based on the track record and how it's obtaining its returns. So I think in both cases, it's those conversations about exits or redemptions make sense if the strategy itself is, is not performing where it's expected to perform. So in the case of a high vol strategy, if you have a couple of really tough months, I mean, that's part of the package. And so it maybe makes sense or depending on how tough the months are, but makes sense to kind of continue forward. This is part of the package. Whereas a low vol strategy, those tough months, well. Well, this doesn't make sense. This isn't a part of the strategy. Does that kind of make sense? That makes sense. And I think also there's one debate. I think it's like, it's super expensive to start a hedge fund these days. I think in 30, 40 years ago, it was way easier to start one. It was way cheaper to start one. Now you probably need hundreds of thousands a year on operating costs. So now is that what you're seeing on your end as well? It's getting too expensive to start one. The barrier entry to, to actually start a hedge fund is, is difficult. It's, it, it is, yeah, it is more expensive. And part of it, it's hard to get VC funding to, to start a hedge fund, right? That's not typically what a hedge fund business is not typically what a lot of VCs or angel investors are pushing their capital through. I would argue one potential is it's very difficult to exit from a hedge fund, right? Like when you, when a VC pushes capital through a startup, there's, 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 not they're not always, but the idea of an exit is maybe important. And that's not what's happening with a hedge fund. It's difficult to raise capital to start a hedge fund, and it does require a lot of initial capital to do so. So typically the a fund is kind of started with your own personal capital and maybe some very close family and friends that are your seed investors. And so because of that, it's actually the buried entry is quite high because if you need to invest your own 
personal capital. And like to your point, hundred to a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatnot to kind of get things well on the order of 50 to hundred K or something to kind of get things off the ground. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money for most people to kind of start up. That's definitely something that like the space has to improve, right? Because like when like it's, for example, it's so much easier to start up these days at like near zero cost. Whereas it's just start a fund. It's like a hundred thousand dollars a year on costs. So I think that's something definitely like, I think I, I personally think the space needs to improve. So, so yeah, let's move on to the next question. I think I really wanted to ask like, what are your vision for HTS for the next five or 10 years? I asked this question to every guest that comes on the show, many of them startups. I know hedge funds are different, but what are your plans for QTS for the next five, 10 years? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, because we're a hedge fund, well, there's two kind of objectives and they kind of go hand in hand. And one is just to kind of scale up, grow your AUM for your fund, for your strategies. And then the other objective is to essentially deliver, essentially a quality product, quality strategies that have that have gone through the ropes when it comes to your testing and are deliver, have identified real alpha in the market. And these two kind of go hand in hand with a hedge fund, right? If you've got quality strategies, then it's a lot easier to raise your AUM. And so for, for me, it's about these two things, heavy investment into the R and D process, developing our strategies, making them more robust, particularly as market regimes kind of shift and scaling up our AUM as a result. I mean, our existing strategies have trade some of the most liquid instruments in the world. And so. There's a lot of potential there for scaling. As it relates to our existing setup, we have a lot of capacity to kind of scale. But to your point, I mean, the idea is that the big vision is to kind of build, constantly be innovating, building the best, the best strategies that are extracting alpha from all kinds of asset classes or markets. And I personally think that he, like QTS is a very different firm. Personally, I've known many funds, their goal is just to scale at all costs, even when they might not have the best strategies, they scale the AUM, they scale the sizes, the team, and then it might be short lived like a couple of years, like three to five years, and they shut down eventually and they open a new one. And I think that's how traditionally like the Wall Street has been doing with the funds. And I think for QTS, like what you guys are doing, uh, maybe you can tell us more about like what you guys are doing, because I feel like QTS is such a different firm when it comes to like philosophies like those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our focus is on, is big time on innovation. Like I said, we're trying to do this. We're in this for the long haul. So our big focus is R and D and innovation and developing quality quant strategies, right? So we have a set of strategies right now, a tail hedging strategy that kind of is designed to protect a portfolio in the midst of a crisis. So for example, right now, but we're not looking to kind of stop there and this is our strategy and this is, this is our one thing that we're offering. We're, we're in a constant process of innovating and developing new strategies and, or improving existing ones. For example, just rolled out in July an improved, an improved version of Tail Reaper, um, with actually with, with the idea, we discussed this previously, how the retail environment has kind of shifted the market. The whole purpose of that new kind of innovation is to deal with this kind of different market environment that we're in, arguably as a result of the massive influence of, of the retail money. So this is an example of the strategy going through a pretty rigorous research process that we invest a lot of time and a lot of money into to, to kind of improve this product for our client, for our existing clients and those that are interested. That's just one example that was rolled out in July, but we're constantly developing new, different, uncorrelated strategies with the emphasis on making this, you know, having a strong track, strong strategies and doing this for the long term. And like I said, that goes hand in hand with scaling up. It's, it, I think that maybe the easiest way to scale up or maybe the more robust way to scale up is by focusing on the, the offerings, the strategies, the solutions that you're delivering. It's so unique to focus on the strategies, to focus on the innovation and the actual strategies. 
like I said, like so many firms that have focus on the financials and the opposite. And it's great to see, to see you here and leading QTS. And I think now it's been 10 years since the fund has started. Yeah, yeah. It was founded in 2011 by Ernest Chan. Ernie founded it. So we've got a, a decently long track record, to, you know, and the plan is to kind of continue forward long-term. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's super inspiring. So thanks so much, Nahid, for coming on to the show today and sharing more about like Quan in general, what is like Quan trading, what is the hedge fund and sharing with our listeners all about those different type of things. So hopefully to see you here very soon in a year or two, talk more about like the accomplishment for QTS and thanks so much. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.